This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. We mentioned last month that Radio Parallax would be going to a more irregular schedule. We did point out that that did not mean we would not be producing new material. In fact, that's what today's show is all about. Mr. Mullen and I do need a break to catch up on a lot of things in life. But the sort of things you see in today's headlines are just so interesting, we just can't resist talking about them. And yes, I did say last month we were looking forward to more content in the future that would not be based on what's in today's headlines, but when you have some of the headlines like the ones that are currently floating around, well, you, it's just, it's, it's hard to look elsewhere. And I'm going to start today's program with one news item which was really buried in the back pages. I don't think it caught anybody's eye, generally, but it, it, it caught our attention. Because, quite frankly, we really like space stuff. And this is one of the more curious space stories we've seen lately. This correspondent is fascinated by the fact that although we think we know what's going on in our local neighborhood, our solar system, as far out as the orbiting belt of comets, the Oort cloud, about a light year away from the sun, but but attached to our solar system, orbiting it, We have talked in past shows about various theories about how maybe the sun has a very dim star somehow orbiting it, and that every so often, as it gets closer, this disrupts comets. The comets crash into the inner part of the solar system. They cause catastrophes. They hit the Earth, cause all kinds of problems, including mass extinctions of whatever life is present at that time. Uh, This idea is still being batted around, but as the instruments get better and better, they're looking for this supposed nemesis, Death Star, companion of our sun, and it's, it's, it's not turning up. So the fact is it may not be there at all. Probably isn't. But wouldn't you know it, it turns out that there's some pretty solid evidence now that a very dim star did, in fact, crash through our Oort cloud, orbiting about a light year away from the sun, and this happened about 70,000 years ago. How do we know this? Well, it's possible to take our sensitive instruments, look out into the heavens, and measure how much a star is moving sideways relative to us. Now, if you're, say, sitting in the stands at a baseball game and the batter hits the ball, and it's heading generally in your direction, but you notice it's not really moving left or right, it just is getting bigger, well, that means it's heading straight at you. If it should miss you and keep on going, well, it would retreat from you in one direction. It would just get smaller. In a similar way, we can look at stars up in the heavens and tell the ones that are moving right at us or right away from us. And in surveying the heavens, they found... One particularly curious example of this involving what's known as Schultz's star. Schultz's star is very, very dim. We'll go over that in a minute. It's actually a double star system, if you want to call it that. It has a brown dwarf orbiting it, which is 
a failed star, one not quite big enough to ignite the nuclear fires in its, in its center, but still radiates heat due to the contraction energy of so long ago when it formed from its proto-solar system, as it were. Schultz's star is only 20 light years away, which is fairly close as these things go. I think there's only a couple dozen objects out there closer than that. And it wasn't discovered until 2010 because it is so very dim. But after they found it and they tracked it, they discovered it looked like it was just pulling straight away from us, not moving sideways, just going in one direction, which means if you trace it back in time, which they've done based on its speed, you come up with the fact that 70,000 years ago, it almost hit us, almost being, you know, came one light year away. Coming that close means it crashed through our Oort cloud, as it were, and undoubtedly disrupted a lot of these orbiting balls of ice and caused them to crash into the inner solar system. Some of them may still be in the process of crashing. Scientists looking out at the edge of the solar system have observed 36 bodies which have peculiar orbits they think might be attributable to this near miss by Schultz's star. Now, you might wonder, as I did, how this star would have looked to our ancestors walking the Earth 70,000 years ago and looking up in the sky. And here's the surprise. They wouldn't have seen it. Even one light year away, which is four times closer than the current closest star, Proxima Centauri, even just one light year away, this thing is so dim that it would not have been visible to our ancestors. Except that there is some evidence that it may be a flare star, one that occasionally brightens to something like a thousand times its regular brightness, as reported on this program. Proxima Centauri did this in March of last year. According to calculations, it might just have been visible to the naked eye if you were looking at the right spot at the right time. And we asked our listenership to sign in if anybody happened to have seen this or heard of anybody that's seen it and weeds nothing but crickets so evidently that that event passed unnoticed here on earth this sort of does raise the possibility that perhaps that nemesis so-called death star orbiting our friendly local neighborhood star known as the sun well maybe maybe we're not being orbited by a companion dim star at all but but a brown dwarf these things are very dim indeed, but can be substantially larger than Jupiter, which means it's a pretty fair-sized piece of real estate. Anyway, research into this continues, and when they find out more, we'll be sure to let you know. I, I do find this stuff really, really interesting, and I hope you do as well. And uh, here's quite a different story, but one which we also find impossible to resist. It turns out that over in Europe... In, in Kosovo, the breakaway republic, which is trying to declare itself independent of Serbia, the clocks have been running a little bit slow for a while. This came about because, well, I guess last year Kosovo failed to generate enough electricity to meet its needs. And according to the body overseeing Europe's electricity grid, Serbia, who is legally responsible for making up the shortfall, uh, decided not to. 
And yes, this has everything to do with Kosovo's efforts to secede from Serbia. At any rate, electricity suppliers in Serbia um, didn't give them the extra juice they needed, and the electricians, I guess if you want to call them that, in Kosovo decided the way around this was to, well, just slow the frequency of the alternating current in the grid a little bit to spread the available electricity just a little more thinly. And yes, apparently this did keep the lights on, but it also caused the electric clocks, such as those embedded in household appliances, which use the metronome-like pulse of alternating current to keep time, to run just a little bit slower. This evidently had a chain-like reaction across the rest of Europe, reportedly the 50 hertz current in clocks from Portugal to Turkey slowed down to 49.996 cycles per second. At any rate, Kosovo's now started generating enough electricity, but it's still missing 344 seconds from its grid time. We here at Radio Parallax are thinking about taking up a collection to see if we can't send a little more electricity over to Kosovo. If they could bump that 50 hertz cycle up just, just a little bit, they could get the clocks synced up correctly again in, in no time. Well, I guess we've started off this program on a science note. Let's continue to look at some science items. There's been quite a bit of uh, headline news about the fact that, that perhaps... Doctors, anatomists, scientists, etc. have all missed the fact that there's yet another human organ. At any rate, scientists at New York University Lagone School of Medicine are now claiming that, well, if you think about it, the uh, vast network of fluid-filled channels, which surrounds our muscle and lines our digestive tract, also our respiratory tract, our urinary tract, well, that might be this previously undetected human organ known as the interstitium. The researchers believe that this newly found structure, which appears to be an open fluid-filled highway, serves as an internal shock absorber for other organs and also plays a major role in the immune system. The interstitium holds about 20% of all the fluid in the human body, but it's been noted that, well, perhaps it evaded detection until now, since tissue samples are typically dehydrated before being examined under the microscope. Well, is it a distinct organ? I don't know. This is kind of hair-splitting. There's also been much in the news about a so-called male pill. This has been a holy grail in science for some time. These recent studies show they come with a, with a new compound, which can lower a man's testosterone level, and suppress a couple of horm other hormones that are responsible for our sperm production, and supposedly does this without any significant side effects. I do have to say that a compound that lowers one's testosterone level is a long way away from a male pill. But, you know, this is the way of health news stories. They're always touting something and overblowing it, and, and it's, it's, it's very frustrating. Since we aired our last program, newly produced program, we have passed a rather sad milestone, 50 years, which would be the 50th anniversary of the death, the murder of Martin Luther King in 1968. I think it is fair to say that although the man died a half century ago, his cause does live on, and a great deal of what is the civil rights movement, as it still exists today, owes its origins to Reverend King.
It's horrible to contemplate that he was only 39. A, a couple of friends of this program have written a book about the assassination of Martin Luther King, and perhaps in the months to come, we will have them on to talk about it. We're most definitely not going to go into this today, but let's just say there are still some mysteries surrounding his murder. And uh, those mysteries still reverberate in America today. In reading about this anniversary, I, I was shocked to note that I did not recall the fact that he addressed the 1964 Republican National Convention at the Cow Palace. He unsuccessfully urged delegates to support civil rights legislation in their party platform. That was the same Republican convention that um, turned to the right and endorsed Barry Goldwater, at that time considered a far-right candidate. Now he might be considered a Republican in name only. And yes, I confess to being old enough to remember the 1964 Republican convention, although I was uh, in grade school. Like the rest of the nation, we were all in a state of shock at, at this news, uh, which was compounded just two months later by the assassination of Bobby Kennedy, both of which came five years after the assassination of John Kennedy. We take the position on this program that it is quite likely that none of those three events was, in fact, the work of single individuals. But again, that's a topic for another day. Another political death I think I will have a little bit to say about is um, that of Joseph Stalin. Now, I don't remember Stalin because I was born after his death, but I do remember his successors and some of the politics that took place. And uh, I do recommend the movie currently in your local theater titled The Death of Stalin. It is played as a farce. It is not historically accurate in many respects, and yet I think it's true in some ways to the spirit of the strange society which Stalin created and which suddenly found itself without a leader back in 1953. And, and we might do well to do a brief review of Soviet history, for those of you uh, not up on it. Stalin... Uh, it's fair to say, was as ruthless a dictator as Adolf Hitler. He brutally murdered millions of his own people. Once famously said that one death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic. He secured power in the Soviet Union by the end of the 1920s and instituted basically a reign of terror. Anyone he saw as a rival who might be smarter than he was or might have a power base that could challenge him pretty much got liquidated. One can appreciate in watching the movie how even the people who had survived this process and were his closest associates, the ones that would go have a meal with him, uh, have a drink with him, and watch, watch John Ford cowboy movies with him in, the, in his dacha near, near Moscow, were themselves uh, under suspicion, constantly worried about how they might be next. One imagines that this is really how things operate in Russia today, the heir of the Soviet Union, probably in China. Uh, it's very difficult to understand what's going on in these nations. They're not exactly transparent. But uh, we were going to do a review, weren't we? Well, okay, so Stalin, uh, at the time of his death in 1953, um, has purged 
himself of a lot of the rivals in, in the country, including we didn't he didn't purge Field Marshal Zhukov, who was the you know leading general probably of World War II, but he had him demoted. What you see in that movie, if you do elect to see it, uh, dear listener, is not historically accurate. Zhukov was evidently not in Moscow at the time of Stalin's death. He'd been demoted and put out to pasture somewhere. Uh, he was now a marshal, not, not a field marshal. But after Stalin died, he was rehabilitated. In the game of musical chairs that took place after Stalin's death, uh, the, the people that emerged victorious were Nikita Khrushchev, played in the movie by Steve Buscemi, and uh, Anastas McCoyan, who actually managed to survive the purge that uh, demoted Khrushchev in 1964. This is all worth knowing about, I think, dear listener. Uh, if you see the movie, it may uh, spur you to go on to the web and research this. I hope you do that. Uh, you will. You can learn this. You can learn this fascinating history in a relatively short time by the miracle of the internet. And as I say, we possibly know more about that era, at least what people like Khrushchev said happened, uh, than we maybe do know about what's going on today in the Kremlin under Vladimir Putin. Oh, and Vladimir, he just took 77% of the vote in an election that was marked by severely restricted competition pretty much universally observed that this election was neither free nor fair because critics of Putin, such as opposition leader Alexei Navalny, were barred from running and because Russia restricts freedom of assembly and suppresses civil rights groups. Putin, who has led Russia either as president or prime minister for 18 years, uh, understandably barely bothered to campaign. Interesting article in The Economist last month about Russia and what the expectations are of young people in Russia, they would very much like to see their country become a normal one in their eyes. It certainly remains to be seen what kind of change we will see in Russia in the years to come. Under Putin, it's been pretty clear that uh, it is his cronies that uh, are in control and it is their children which are being put into positions of wealth and power, which which I think it is sad to note, is probably not that far different from the situation that existed before they had a Bolshevik revolution. Across the Russian border in China, it seems to be, you know, some interesting parallels. Xi Jinping has now made himself eligible to be president for life in China, and uh, he is displaying some ruthless skill in how he is dispatching his political rivals. Kevin Rood, former Australian Prime Minister, said the anti-graft campaign, which Xi Jinping launched in 2013, is a master class in political warfare. In addition to reducing theft, Mr. Xi used it to remove potential rivals, install loyalists, and cement his own power at the top. It is rather sad to look around the world and see what's going on the likes of Turkey, the Philippines, Egypt, etc., and observe that strong men, quote-unquote, strong men seem to be thriving everywhere. It would be nicer if they were wise men or kind men, but we got what we got. Since we're talking about strong man rule, let's, let's, let's talk a little about what's going on in Syria. 
My attention was drawn to a post on a social network of late from uh, one of our listeners in Chico. The post expressed skepticism over what was going on in Syria. These reports, I think this is now the fourth episode of alleged poison gas attacks by the Assad regime, um, there's, there's just some doubt as to what's going on over there. The reports of these atrocities are coming, coming to us through the opposition groups. The footage that we're seeing uh, at times clearly looks staged and clearly at times looks phony. Since it appears on the battlefield that the Syrian forces, with the help of the Russians, have the resistant fighters bottled up and uh, on the verge of capitulation, it, it would seem odd that that would be the time the regime would choose to unleash weapons of mass destruction, which was bound to uh, invoke anger around the world and possibly get the U.S. more involved in what's going on over there. If there was something alike about Donald Trump as he was running for president, and, and let's face it, there may have been a thing or two, we would point to the fact that he swore we were not going to get involved in Syria and the whole thing was stupid. On this program, we've chronicled over the years the efforts by certain factions here in the U.S. to quote-unquote destabilize the Assad regime, and we refer you to news stories which have come out in the last year showing how as early as 1986, the central intelligence agencies and, and its allies in the U.S. were planning how they would topple the Assad regime. In that case, it was Assad Sr. And uh, when Assad Jr. took over a few years back, they, I guess they decided this was the time to act. You may recall how in 2004, General Wesley Clark, then running for the Democratic nomination for president, announced that he had seen these plans and how we were going to take out one country after the next in the Middle East according to plan, Syria was definitely on the list. And isn't it sad to contemplate that uh, John Bolton is now advising Donald Trump on foreign affairs and he has gone on record as saying it would be justified for us to attack North Korea now and attacking Iran in the near future, that also might be a good thing to do. And um, circling back to Russia, uh, it seems clear that a lot of nations are really taking it personal that uh, evidently Vladimir Putin and cronies decided to poison uh, a political enemy in London. Many nations are considering this to be beyond the pale, although it seems pretty clear that such assassinations have been almost a matter of routine in the past few years. But here at Radio Parallax, we applaud these efforts to draw a line in the sand and saying this must stop. And uh, there's a slight comedy addendum to this, if that's the right word. Political operative Roger Stone, the man who probably more than anybody else in America is responsible for the Donald Trump presidency, is now saying that he spent Christmas of 2016 trying to survive an assassination attempt, most likely radioactive polonium poisoning, by someone trying to frame Russia. Roger Stone told reporters that tests were conducted, the doctors were baffled, and uh, even the Centers for Disease Control was contacted. The press has noted that from the moment he has made these claims, Stone has deflected questions when asked to back these claims up. This happened again last week in a wide-ranging conversation with CNN's Anderson Cooper involving Attorney General Sessions, WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, and Trump. 
At one point, Cooper said he had questions about Stone's polonium assertions. Stone told Cooper, I was extraordinarily ill, before referring to pictures of his face during the period. You can see in the file footage that used the beginning of this segment, I still have lesions on my face from the illness. My doctor believed I was poisoned. Stone wouldn't go into detail when Cooper asked for proof, even when the host insisted that polonium poisoning would be a huge issue in the United States if someone was poisoned with polonium. Stone directed viewers to My InfoWars report on it on the Alex Jones-hosted website. All right, we've got a few minutes left here in this segment. Let, let it, let's continue in this absurd vein because, well, absurdities can be curious. We have been uh, unstinting in our criticism of the American court system on this show, but uh, on a regular basis, we have taken a look at other courts around the world to, to note that, well, they look even worse. The Week magazine and report based in Italy noted that uh, the Italian legal system is creaking at the seams. Writer John Antonio Stella noted that uh, the courts there are clogged with absurdly trivial cases. In the, southern, in the southern region of Puglia, for example, a man has just been acquitted for stealing a single eggplant from a field. This is after a nine-year legal battle that cost taxpayers about $9,000. Italian police evidently caught the jobless suspect leaving the field with the offending vegetable in a bucket in 2009. He claimed he'd only taken it to feed his starving family, and the farmer didn't press charges. Yet, he was still prosecuted, sentenced to five months in jail, and fined about $600, penalties that were reduced on appeal. His lawyer, incensed at the unfairness of it all, lodged the case at the Supreme Court in Rome where it languished for years until the justices finally threw it out. The court had accumulated a backlog of more than 100,000 of such crazy cases. Most are domestic spats, like the man who sued his daughter-in-law for serving him shop-bought rather than homemade pasta, or disputes between neighbors over such petty things as wet laundry dripping onto the balcony below. No one wants arbitrary limits on court time, asked the writer, but is it really so hard to distinguish between important cases of principle and those that just waste time and money? Well, if I had more time and money, dear listener, I would tell you about a court, couple of court cases that took place in the Sacramento area that are pretty mind-boggling, but I'm not going to do it. Instead, I'm going to tell you about what happened in uh, Romania. Apparently, Constantine Reliu age 63, appealed unsuccessfully to a court in Barlad, Romania in March. He was trying to overturn a death certificate that his wife had obtained after not hearing from him for more than a decade. According to The Guardian, Reliu's wife, believing he had died in an earthquake in Turkey, argued in court for the death certificate. This did not come to light until Reliu was deported back to Romania because of expired papers in Turkey. And yes, the fact that he appealed unsuccessfully means that even though he is in fact alive, in Romania, legally, he is dead. You listen to Radio Parallax, we need a break. We're going to lighten things up, maybe, in the second segment. Stick around. Come on. 